0: Over the years, there are three Christmas stories that I enjoy reading over and over. often rotate them through the years. The first is the best Christmas pageant ever. And it's just a blast to read out, so, out loud, especially if you use a West Virginian accent. It is a lot of fun. A couple years ago, I read this to the kids here at Risen and last year. We, we enjoyed it. Second is a book called The Story of the Other Wise Man by Henry Van Dyke, who's also the author of the well-known hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, or the Hymn of Joy. And it's the story of a fourth wise man who missed the initial journey of the three, and he comes along behind, uh, and he just spends his life searching for Jesus until the end of his days come and I won't give you the ending but it gets me every time every time the third uh, is Papa Panov's special day by Leo Tolstoy and this is a bridged version for kids but I love Papa Panov he's a Russian shoemaker lives in a little village he's known by the villagers they love him And it's Christmas Eve, and Papa Panov, who's usually jolly, he just feels a bit sad. He's down. His wife has been gone now with the Lord for many years, and his children have their own families, and they're far away, and he's just lonely. He gets a cup of coffee, and he sits down in a chair, and he starts to read the Christmas story as he starts to muse on what he would have done to help the baby Jesus if he had been there. Papa Panov dozes off, he hears a voice, Papa Panov, Papa Panov. He's like, he says, you wanted to see me. I'm going to come and visit you today. Stay awake, be watchful, I will come. And Papa Panov is like, was that Jesus? Like, And puts on a pot of coffee, part of why I love Papa Panov, he loves coffee, um, and he stays awake. And it's the the story of, of the people that he meets through the day as he awaits the visit from Jesus. I'll save the ending as well. Great stories. This week, I found my own heart really drawn to Papa Panov. If any of you kids want, you can come and grab these. I love Christmas. I've also, though, found my own heart wrestling through my own feelings of joy and expectation and also sadness. There are people that I miss that have gone to be with the Lord, and there are many families that I care about that are also grieving the loss of loved ones, and one dear family in Uganda, even now, uh, grieving afresh the loss of a parent. There are also things that I simply miss from Christmas's past. And I wonder, why does Christmas stir such emotions within us? remember when we were kids and the hardest thing about Christmas was waiting to open a present. And of course, each one of us in this room, we have different Christmas memories, Uh, some joyful, some painful, the holidays, they find us each in a very different place. No matter where you find yourself, whether it's in the hustle and the bustle of the season or simply in the battle of the human heart. How amazing would it be if, like Papa Panov, we would simply be visited by Jesus? Because that is what Christmas is about. It's about our Emmanuel, God with us, the God who comes and visits. He comes and dwells among His people. It's about the giver becoming the gift. And, of course, our our own joyful response and our joyful giving of gifts to one another And this is what our hearts long for. This is what we were made for more than presents or meals or even family, past and present. We were made for a longing for God himself to come and meet us and fill us and satisfy us in our joy and in our grief. And that's the great joy of Christmas. As we come into God's word this morning, we're going to focus on Luke's gospel. So you can turn to Luke. We're going to see through Luke's eyes the Christmas narrative that God has indeed visited you and me. And in His tender mercy, He makes Himself known to us. He calls each of us to behold Him, to respond to Him in adoring worship. Because as we heard last week, He is the God who visits His people to keep his promises for our eternal joy. And this week we just flesh that a little bit more and say that he is the God who visits and redeems his people. He's the God who visits and redeems. And he does this as we behold and make known the glory of Jesus. Please pray with me as we come to God's word. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And through him. You're the God who has come to us. You're the God who invites us to behold you. Lord, we need you this day. And God, you know the needs in our midst. Even as we read those great words from Isaiah, you know the hearts that, that need bound up, the prisons that, that need released. Lord, you know the, uh, the joy and the sorrow. You know the hope before us. And and the struggles within us. And so, Lord, we look to you, and we pray that your word would refresh us. We pray that we would be washed in the great uh, good news of your story and what you've done. We pray that you would draw our hearts together as one, as a family here, as a body before you, that we would build each other up in love. We pray for eyes to behold you this day for the glory of your name, amen, amen. Last week, Pastor Peter led us on a journey really through Genesis 21 and the incredible, laughable birth of Isaac. And we've enjoyed using laugh in many different ways in our house uh, this week. Um, and really just seeing that story as the sweet culmination of, of 30 years of pain and promise. And I love that picture of sorrow being swallowed up in joy. And in that, we saw that no matter where we are today, no matter where this moment finds us, there is hope that the cycle of pain and promise will indeed one day come to an end. And as Peter said, we will experience a joy wiped away sorrow. I love that, a joy wiped away sorrow. I want you to imagine 2,000 years of waiting, 2,000 years have passed from the time of Isaac's birth. As we jump from Genesis 21 all the way to Luke, it's a 2,000-year span. That's a long time. And a lot has happened in those 2,000 years because Isaac would carry the promise, right? The promise that went all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The promise of the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. And Isaac would have Jacob. And Jacob would have the twelve. And out of the twelve, the tribe of Judah would take on the royal promise of the offspring. And the 12 would find themselves a nation and they would be down in Egypt for 400 years, slaves, oppressed, in the cycle of pain and promise and pain and promise ever before them. And God came to them after those 400 years and used Moses to lead his people out of slavery, out of bondage to death, and out of that serpent Led serpent-wielding Pharaoh would judge and bring salvation. And he led his people out of is out of Egypt and brought them into Israel, where he entered into covenant with them along the way in Exodus 19. And, and, and he was faithful to his promises, even in the unfaithfulness of their own rebellion and struggle to believe what God had incredibly declared. We find again that cycle: pain and promise revisited, even as they're in the land, even through the time of judges and the hope of when will the one come? When will he come? We come to David and God puts David from the tribe of Judah on the throne and makes a promise and a covenant to him in 2 Samuel 7 and promises that one of his offspring will sit on that throne forever and ever and rule all nations. And this expectant hope is building and building. But as each of David's sons failed, As their own sin and desperate need of a Savior is revealed, and the nation continues to spiral down. They eventually are led into exile among the nations. God is faithful, though, to His promise. And after 70 years, He brings them back. And though they find themselves in the land, they are still very much slaves and very much in exile. For 400 years, there is silence. And after the prophetic words of Malachi, there is no more word. And so those 2,000 years from Abraham to this moment feel so long as the people have waited and waited and waited. And then one day, unexpectedly, God does something. We find our story in Luke chapter 1, where Luke begins his gospel with a priest who's appropriately named Zechariah, which means God remembers. And this Zechariah has a wife who is also of the priestly line of Aaron, and her name is Elizabeth, which can be translated God's promise. I like that. God remembers God's promise. Very appropriate beginning for this gospel. As it picks up after this silence and after all of these years of waiting and waiting and waiting, God has not forgotten. God is present. God is orchestrating something beyond their imagination. And he kicks off this great uh, story by coming and appearing to Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth both loved God. They walked before him blamelessly. It says they kept his law. But Luke tells us in verse 7 of chapter 1, but they had no child because elizabeth was barren <clears throat> and both were advanced in years does that remind you of anyone genesis 18:11 you know it's so good that we've been in genesis i love seeing these things tied together remember genesis 18:11 god said uh, now abraham and sarah were old advanced in years The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And here we come into a couple that has no child. She's barren and they're advanced in years. And really the idea is that she is beyond childbearing years, very similar to Sarah. You get the same kind of impossibility. And here is Zechariah now introduced. He is serving as a priest before God and his division was chosen by Lot. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. We find that in verse 9. One commentator just drew out the little point that there were about 18,000 priests serving uh, within the temple area uh, at different times. And so, you know, even if, you're, if, if a name was chosen by Lot once a day, you're talking about once in about 50 years, you might get to go into the temple. And so it just so happened. And those are those great, you know, just so happens, right? As God is directing, God is working, and, and God has purposed this moment for Zechariah to come in to the temple. (coughs) The text says in verse 10 that the whole multitude of people were praying outside. And for Luke, this is really important because he loves to draw attention to when God's people gather to pray, something's gonna happen. And so as the text has already hinted, something's gonna happen. Peter told us that often when a narrative starts with they're barren, we're expectant, Now we're expectant because we have a praying people. And as Zechariah is in the temple, an angel of the Lord appears to him on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12 tells us that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and that fear fell upon him. You can kind of get the idea. It's, whoa, am I a dead man right now? (coughs) But that's not... God's purpose for Zechariah. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I like that. Because we don't know when Zechariah had prayed. It says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. He had obviously prayed about this. And whether it's been 10 years or 10 minutes, we don't know. But God has heard his prayer. And God has purposed a plan in response and according to his will. Like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've known the reality of pain and disappointment. Right, their entire lives, though, have been building towards this moment. They just couldn't see it. And God cuts through the question of the heart. Because like, you imagine throughout their whole marriage, it, it, they're faithful to God and they're asking, God, Why? why haven't you given us children why us why when we have been faithful to you of course the text doesn't say that those are just the questions of the human heart and here god doesn't answer the why but do you know what god does he gives them a very clear unto and that all of it has been unto something because god has been at work through all of the pains and all of the disappointments And they will have a son, and he will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with God's spirit, even from his mother's womb. His life will have purpose. He will turn many in Israel to the Lord their God. And verse 17 tells us that this child will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this is language that takes us back to the prophet Malachi. Again, 400 years earlier. God is now bringing to pass what he has spoken through the prophets. And it's at this point that we expect Zechariah, like Abram, to believe the Lord, right? To, to trust. And yet that is not what happens. It is here that Zechariah simply says, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. You know, like she's beyond having children. And God simply says, through the angel, The angel speaks, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Perhaps the years of pain and disappointment had brought a bitter root, choking out the hope that would spring forth in faith. Or maybe he's just a practical guy, right? He knows they're too old. It's physically impossible. Either way, God tells us there are consequences for the unbelief. God's going to accomplish His purpose. God is going to bring about His plan. But Zechariah will not be able to speak for nine months. silent. Nine months of expectant waiting, right? 2,000 years, 400 years, what's nine months? For Zechariah, those must have been a very long nine months. And it's at this point I want us to just sit on that a bit. How do we respond to the difficult and painful realities that we face? How do we respond when God's Word comes and confronts our view of things, our view of a situation, our view of ourselves, our view of others. When hope rises up only to be met with disappointment again and again, we feel like God is withholding from us or that things will never be different. Yet God comes and He offers something beyond what we hoped for, different than what we expect, how do we respond to the incredible truths of the gospel that confront us? I often ask people to read Ephesians 1 and simply take note of what are the hardest truths of the gospel for them to believe. We stand very much like Zechariah. Here is the truth before us. How does it confront our own per- perceptions? Over the 20 years that Laura Beth and I labored among the fields of the fatherless, we saw many different responses to the truths of the gospel from the hearts of the hurting, often broken children that we worked with. Right, for some, the pain of losing their parents was so deep, some absolutely could not believe anything outside of what they felt, what they thought, could not trust, could not hope. And so the truth of the gospel just coming off like water off of a a duck's back. The great glorious reality that the gospel declares that you have a father in heaven who made you and knows you and where your earthly parents have failed you and where, where, where they are no longer here. There is a Father who will never leave you and never forsake you. You see those words? Empty. They seem heavenly. And yet, they are not heavenly words. They are true and real. They are very much earthly because God has come to us. He has come to dwell among us. And it's amazing to watch hearts melt in the truth of the gospel. To watch Hearts fall in love with God the Father. To fall in love with the Son, to behold Him, to begin to find those hurting places bound up and to find those prison doors released, and that is glorious. Very different responses. And sometimes you move from one to the other, and it's slowly, 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 slowly. And amongst us right here, we will find the same types of responses. Some, yes, I believe. Others, Ah, that sounds amazing, but I can't believe. We identify right with Zechariah in that place and some in the middle. And yet Christmas reminds us that this promise is for us and it is for you right where you are. And Luke is going to allow us to peer not just into Zechariah's heart and not just with a, a struggle to believe but with many other lives, each with their own story, each with their own backgrounds and difficulties. But they'll each have one thing in common. They will each behold the Christ. And they will each have a different response, just as each of us have different situations and will have different responses. And that we don't have time to walk through every single person from Luke chapter 1 into Luke chapter 2. We're just going to highlight together a few key things. We want to highlight some of these responses and we want to see how does God make himself known to his people. And and together we want to ask ourselves how our own hearts revealed. And who knows, maybe on Christmas you can read through Luke's narrative and think more on, on these things. But I love that even with the reality of what would come to Zechariah, there was something spoken to him in verse 14 that's beautiful because even as he's promised a child will come and he will prepare the way for Messiah, verse 14 says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Right? You will have joy and gladness. And I wonder over those nine months what was being birthed in Zechariah in the hope that he would have joy and gladness Before him, a joy wiped away sorrow. There's gonna be a contrast here because Luke's gonna draw our attention away from from an older uh, couple, older woman, uh, Elizabeth, and he's gonna draw it to now a younger woman, Mary. And he comes. Um, She's in a very different place than Elizabeth because she is betrothed. She is, we don't know the age. Some say 15, 16, 17, 18. I just don't know. We don't know. She's a young woman. She's betrothed, which means that she's legally bound to Joseph, but not yet fully married. They have not consummated the marriage. There has not been a full marriage uh, ceremony and feast. And Gabriel comes to Mary with an even crazier announcement than he brought to Zechariah. And in verse 30 of chapter 1, he says, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High.'" And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. If they could have done an angelic mic drop, that's the moment because it's just there. All of this Old Testament hope, all of the covenant promises, all of them are looking, they are, they are being fulfilled. Jesus is the one, and he will reign on David's throne forever, but different than everyone who's ever gone before, because this will be the Son of God himself, God in the flesh. And of course, in verse 34, Mary wants to know, How can this be, right? How? Because I'm a virgin. And the angel says to her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's how. It's not possible with man. It's impossible. But with God, it's more than possible. And the angel tells Mary about Elizabeth, who even in her old age, is in the 6th month of her who was called barren. And then I love verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Did you catch that? 2000 years before when God promised Abraham that he would bring life out of death, right? A child from a dead womb. He he said to him, is anything too hard for the Lord? And here nothing will be impossible with God, and I love the connections. What does Mary do? She simply believes, and that's an important contrast. Zechariah doesn't believe, but God is faithful. Mary, she wants to know how this is going to happen, but she believes. She trusts, and God is faithful. God's promises and His purposes will come about. And then Luke takes us on a journey from this incredible announcement, a journey of discovery and response. And we're going to see it again now with Elizabeth, and then to Zechariah, and then to shepherds, and then to Simeon, and then to Anna. Just hit some key things from those together. The first response, Elizabeth, because now Mary... Having baby Jesus in her own womb goes to visit Elizabeth, and we find this story uh, in chapter 1 from verse 39 up to 45, and it's so amazing because even as Mary walks into the room, Elizabeth, the baby, jumps. John the Baptist, John in her womb, jumps with joy because his cousin, Jesus, is present in Mary. That's that's awesome. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she, ex- she exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And we see her response of faith. Why is it granted that to me, that the mother of my Lord would come to me? That's in verse 43. She says, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And I I think that's such a great note because she knows that Zechariah hadn't believed and now he can't talk, all right? Mary believed. Mary believed. And she rejoices in the presence of her Savior that is present in the womb of Mary. What a great response of faith and, joy. and that leads into Mary's song of praise, which weaves together such beautiful Old Testament imagery right into the hope of its fulfillment. And, and Mary stays there um, really pretty much up until the time of, of John's birth. Um, and then we get to now a second response. And I'm glad that the story brings us back to Zechariah. Because he has waited, and we want to know what's going to happen, right? How is he going to respond uh, once John is born? And after nine months of silence, and after hosting Mary, and he would have known what God had done when John is born, Zechariah, Luke tells us in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So now he's not just going to speak, He's going to speak prophetically by God's Spirit. And what a great, uh, beautiful flow from unbelief to belief into prophetic utterance by God's Spirit. And I love it that as, as John is born and Zechariah's tongue is loosed, he proclaims in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. And I like that language that God has visited and God has redeemed. As last week, Peter set that word up so well, didn't he? Right? It's not a visiting, uh, guys, just checking on you. How's it going? When God comes and he visits, he is coming with a purpose. He is coming either with judgment or with salvation. He is coming to bring about change in a situation. And we find that he visited and he, he brings about change uh, to Abraham and Sarah. He visits in Egypt and he visits and we walk through that. And this is the reality and the fulfillment that now God has truly come to his people. And he's come and he's visited. He's brought judgment and salvation. He's come with his hands filled to redeem his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn of salvation. That we would be saved and delivered from our enemies. How would God accomplish this? How would God do it? How would God redeem a people through a child. Because this child would grow up. John the Baptist would grow up. He would point to the Messiah. And the baby born from Mary would also grow up. And he would become a man. And he would live a perfect life. He would know his father and obey his father perfectly. He would live out the fullness of the law in every way. And he would overcome temptation by Satan. He would overcome the traps of man, and he would submit himself to his father's purposes perfectly, and ultimately he would give his life as a payment for sin. He would become the very sacrifice that was commanded and offered in the Old Covenant, the Lamb of God, and he would take the wrath of God upon himself, that through his death And through his resurrection, we might receive forgiveness and righteousness, that we might have the hope of salvation of the God who visits and redeems a people. And I don't think Zechariah understood all of this. I don't don't think John did either. I don't think they understood the greater plan. Um, But I love that Zechariah prophesied, and he prophesied that John would give knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. Because that's what would come. Jesus would bring forgiveness of sins. And by the Spirit, this is declared. It will happen. And I love in verse 77, notice what he says. He'll give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And This is good news, the tender mercy of our God. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, through their months of barrenness, years of barrenness, it didn't feel like tender mercy. Through the cycle of pain and promise, it didn't feel like God was being compassionate and, and kind and merciful to them in that reality. For most of us, in the midst of the painful things, we don't see the tender mercy of God. And yet, in the tender mercy of God, He has been at work in and through every moment of every difficulty and every suffering. The tender mercy of God revealed and made known to His people, the God who visits And the God who redeems, the God who enters in to the hurting places with purpose and for greater purpose and glory. How do we respond, Zechariah or Mary, Elizabeth? We get the rest of the story after Jesus is born. God comes and He reveals Himself through, again, angelic host to the most unlikely people. They're not hobbits. They're shepherds. Out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And you're talking now the of low, the lowly, the lowest of the low. Um, and yet incredible promises connected into uh, the shepherds throughout the Old Old Testament. And here God comes and He reveals Himself in a multitude of angels, to these daily laborers? I don't know. I picture some old and some young, and that's probably from Uganda. You get, you get really boys and old men are kind of the shepherds um, that are there, and that's just how I picture it. And these angels come, and they proclaim in verse 10 of chapter 2, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel of great joy that will be for all peoples. Because unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign for you. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a manger. And this is awesome. Suddenly there's with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. And how could there not be? Like, how could this? Jesus' birth, right? You get Gabriel here, but now he's born. How could it be one angel? It's a host of angels. And what are they proclaiming? Glory to God in the highest. There is no higher glory than God himself coming and being revealed in his Son. We see God's glory reflected in creation. We see him, him reflected in those who are his image bearers. But there is nothing higher to behold God than to behold his Son. Glory to God in the highest. And there's a purpose Because it's on earth, there is now peace among those with whom he is pleased. And he announces it. And the shepherds are going, whoa, what just happened? We got to get over to Bethlehem. We've got to see this thing, right? And as they're going, verse 17, they're making known, when they saw it, the baby in the manger, they make known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And everyone who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. It's easy to just pass through that. I wish Luke told us what they wondered, right? Because because you've got people from all aspects of life hearing these lowly shepherds declaring this angelic announcement. I mean, they probably sounded crazy, right? Of what God has done. And yet they're wondering, can this be? Can, Can the Messiah truly have been born? You can find some hopeful Some doubting, and yet the message is proclaimed, and Mary's pondering these things in her heart, and the shepherds respond just glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen. What a great response. I love that. Probably my favorite. Until, of course, we come to Simeon. Because the next thing that Luke takes us to is an old man in the temple where he has waited Luke wants us to know that in verse 25, that he's righteous and devout and he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's been waiting, really, for the messianic promises to be fulfilled his whole life to this moment. waiting, waiting, waiting. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and how beautiful that the Spirit of God had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine? I'm waiting. He's going to come, he will come. He's watching for him, he's waiting for him. And then Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus, and Simeon takes him in his arms, and I love his response, now you can let me depart in peace according to your word. It's like, now my years are fulfilled. And I'm satisfied because I've beheld Jesus. Let me depart in peace. The whole purpose of my life is, is fulfilled in the baby that I'm holding because this is the one you've prepared in the presence of all people. This is the light of revelation. And I love it for the Gentiles, like Simeon got it. This is for the, this is for the nations, for the glory of his people, Israel. And then he takes us in that same scene, still in the temple, to a widow. She's also old. And the the amazing thing about Anna is either she's 84 years old, right? And and she uh, has been a widow. I guess she was married for seven years and then was widowed the rest of the time. Or she was 84 years a widow, which would put her probably around 100 years old. And I think that's most likely what's going on. I don't know can read the text different ways. But here is a faithful widow who knows the brokenness. She knows the joy of young marriage, and she knows the joy of those years. And and after seven years, she loses her husband. There is a bitter grief and a bitter pain, and she goes, though, and spends the rest of her life just devoted. God, my husband, (laughs) the protector and defender of the widow. And you find Anna living faithfully, not departing from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that very hour, she comes up and begins to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. What great picture. And Luke has given us here characters of all spheres of life, right? Mary from young, Mary and Joseph, kind of the uh, middle-aged, with Zechariah and Elizabeth right into the older's. Even to the barren, to the lowly, to the widowed, different phases of life. <clears throat> and yet God visits them all. And they all behold Christ. And they all respond in joy and worship and in declaration of this Savior. Does it doesn't mean that their lives have been easy or will be easy, but God has come in the flesh. And he is worthy, and that changes everything. Just to draw us back to Zechariah as we move here towards the end. You know, Zechariah, he couldn't have known the end of all things. Even his own son would have his own journey. Because John, the cousin, his life would be cut short. 30 years old-ish, 30, 32. Even John. Even John, who had leaped in the womb, even John, who while baptizing will declare, Behold, the Lamb of God, right? Even John, who knows all of this, who who this child is, as he himself (coughs) is put into prison, he would wonder, Did I miss something? Is Jesus really the Christ? And then Luke records it. In Luke 7, John the Baptist tells his disciples, go and ask Jesus, are you really the one who was to come or should we expect another? It's one of the most shocking statements that I just, I don't expect it. Every time I read the gospels, I'm like, did that really happen? Did John really ask that? And the answer is yes, because he is in prison. And you imagine all that Jesus is doing and here he is just left in prison. And as his disciples come, Jesus, they ask Jesus, and Jesus says in Luke 7, Go and tell John what you, what you have seen. Go and tell John what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news. Preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What a statement. If you go back and you read through those passages, really Jesus is quoting out of Isaiah. I think there's another place as well. And there's really just one thing missing. And it's that prophetic utterance of the the captives being released or the prisoners set free. You're like, oh (laughs) you know, where is John? He's in prison. Why isn't he being set free? Because there is a greater prison that Jesus sets people free from right? There's something greater. And yes, there are going to be some apostles that will be in prison, and Jesus will set them free, right? That's going to happen later. That is not John's story. John has his own story. Miraculous birth, faithful in life, suffering in prison, pointing to Christ and questioning, are you really the one? And I'm, I'm thankful for that because, again, many of us, we find ourselves in those circumstances, in those situations where we're like, really? Like, is, is it, Jesus, are you really Like, is the gospel really true because this looks hopeless and you are not meeting the expectations that I have of you. And you know what Jesus does? He says, hey, look and listen. See what I've done. Hear my words, right? He has visited and he visits. It just may not be in the way that we expect. Because God has visited and redeemed his people. And what I love about John is John is going to get to the end of his life, and his head is going to be cut off for the sake of Christ. And I can just see John, yep, all right, he is worthy, and my life is his. He is worthy. Do you feel like John stuck in prison? Do you feel like Zechariah struggling to believe? Do you feel like Elizabeth or Mary, just joyful in hope? Because Jesus has visited you today, even if it's not how you expect. And he may not answer the why of every circumstance that you're facing or faced, but he has given you the unto, that you would behold him and that you would know him, that you would cling to him, and that you would make him known. One of my favorite Ugandan stories of, of a heart that believed the gospel, right, in the midst of that, that hard, no, this is too good to be true, and yet Jesus visiting or God visiting this young man and making known the truth. My brother Paul Kasubida, when he tells a story out of deep brokenness and heartache and deep pain, deep, deep pain, he came to know his father. Through, his, through the Son, Jesus. And Paul wrote a song that I love, and one part of the song declares this. Paul says this, once I was fatherless, but now I have a family, a beautiful family with God as my Father. Look at this wondrous love. Look at this wondrous love. You can sing it. Um, it's so good. Today we've been invited to look at this wondrous love, to see the love of God poured out, the gift of His Son. We've been called into His family, there are those in our midst who are struggling, and there are those in our midst who are at a place of just joy and faith and wonder. And what I love is just as Jesus sent the disciples back to John to say, tell him what you've seen, tell him what you've heard, right? Strengthen him in prison. He sends us to one another to tell what he has done, to tell what we have heard, to strengthen each other as we journey with the God who's visited and redeemed and we pray for each other. There's something dynamic about God's people coming together and praying because in the tender mercy of our God, he has come and visited. And guess what, brothers and sisters? Here we are, 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus. 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years from Jesus to us. Seems like a really long time. A whole lot's happened in that time, and He is preparing a bride from the nations. The gospel's going forth. He is still visiting and redeeming, and He's doing it through us and among us. And In this world that we live in, as we await a second coming, a second advent, just as they were waiting and waiting, we are also a waiting people. Where the Son of God, the true Son of David, will come with judgment and salvation, brothers and sisters. When He visits on that day, you want to be in Him um, and not under the judgment of wrath. Those who oppose God, there will be a joy wiped away sorrow. Right? There will be for those are in Christ, as we walk the journey like John, right, to the end of our days, He is worthy. Even if it costs my life, He is worthy um, because He is the God who visits and redeems. Let's remember that great truth this Christmas and declare it to one another. You pray with me.